This is Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome to the Friday Morning Break podcast with John Gibbs. As usual, I continue my quest to understand what exactly schools are for. This week, to help me understand the impact of education and schools, Professor John Gerron of the University College London. John is Professor of Education and Social Statistics, so he should be in an ideal position to explore this topic. This is Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org. Download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in with Teachers Talk Radio. So, John, thanks very much for joining me this week. No, thank you for the invite. As I mentioned in the introduction, you're a professor of social statistics as well as education. And so it's a chance to talk to someone who might actually be able to provide some answers that aren't just based on our, as we said a moment ago, before we started recording, opinions of schools. We've all got an opinion about schools and everyone knows it's a bit like the English football team. You know how it should be run. People know how schools should be. But what what does statistics sort of tell us? Um, first of all, one of the things that's crops up a lot with lately in some of my podcasts and in the news, regularly in the news, is social mobility. And I noticed that you did a bit of research, you wrote an article about how Britain will often come come across as bad on social mobility or poor on social mobility. So people will say things like Britain's, Britain's social mobility has declined or that Britain is just very bad when compared to other countries. How do, how do you measure social mobility? It would seem to me to be a quite problematic just as a concept and how to measure it. Yeah, and this is where a lot of the debate has actually come in. So different people measure it in different ways. And it became a big kind of academic fight for a a period uh, about 10 years ago, right, between the economists and sociologists. And how you measure it does have quite a big impact upon what you observe across countries and what you take about the kind of trends over time, right? So the economists typically have used income to measure Uh, social mobility, so do children earn more or less than their fathers and how does that compare, whatever. Uh, And what that's found is basically income mobility seems to be lower in uh, England than in other countries and it seems to have declined between children born in 1958 and children born in 1970. Now, the sociologists have argued that's not the case. They measure social mobility by occupation. So what's the occupation that a uh, son holds relative to their uh, father? And that has come up with very different results. Actually, England's probably around the international average and not really much change uh, over time. Hence why you've got this kind of debate about actually what has happened, how does England compare or whatever. So, yeah, it's very much one of those ones, the devil's in the detail and how you measure it matters to your kind of perspective on the results. I, could, I also could imagine it's it's a, to some extent how you define what social mobility, well, you'd said it, whether it's by occupation or income. Because there must be periods of time in British history when social mobility would have seemed to be really accelerated, I don't know, industrial revolution or something, where people are moving from really sort of starvation to poor quality jobs. I mean, how, how do you measure whether social mobility is a good thing? Yeah, I, I mean, that's another angle to this. So there's kind of the idea of what's called in the kind of a bunch of academics is 
Um, absolute mobility versus relative to mobility. So relative, uh, absolute kind of mobility is basically, do you obtain uh, more income or a higher kind of more prestigious job than your father in absolute terms, obviously, and relative terms, you know, you're, you're comparing kind of relative. So the average is always going to be zero. So that kind of matters also to kind of how you kind of view the results or whatever. And almost all the debate, um, you know, by successive governments over the last 20 years has been about kind of relative mobility rather than the absolute. So the absolute stuff obviously can includes things such as economic growth as well. Uh, what I suppose I thought, if I think about it, what people must think about social mobility is the, is the, trying to avoid the waste of people with ability not being able to express those abilities in society for our for their and our general good it's rather it's rather good if people with a with talent can express that talent we we all benefit there and that that seems to be to be the, the you know the thing you most you most want and is it fair to say britain does badly at that are we wasting an awful lot of talent um, I don't think we've actually got great data on that and great data on that compared to other countries, not least because of the really difficult measurement challenges in many ways around that, right? So when you're talking about wasting talents, it kind of, it kind of plays into the idea of natural ability, right? Well, how do you measure natural ability? It's really difficult. So you can only ever measure stuff reliable, semi-reliably. I'm sure people have different opinions around this you know, three, four years old, five years old, stuff like that. But a lot obviously has happened in those first few years of life. So, you know, it's a very difficult kind of measurement challenge, even that alone. And then even if you can measure children at say three, four or five years old, we don't have that kind of data really well that compares, that can compare England reliably to other countries. So I think it's a really interesting question to what extent is, England making the best of its kind of um, high achieving disadvantaged pupils, for instance, compared to elsewhere, but we just don't have kind of a, a, that much information about it in a comparative international sense. It's a difficult thing to measure. One, um, some, some research I've seen, I think, or articles you've written, where the, there's a suggestion about, the, about the, the impact of family and on schools. It may, I, I think it was you, I hope it was you. <laughs> <laughs> there, 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 in many ways, schools schools do uh, that. What what you know? What is the what is the, the principal determining factors of whether people achieve their abilities and, and are able to express their talents and are able to live up to their potential? Whatever one to say that is, as you say, the low, the high, the high ability, poor background student. Is it is it essentially the the real determining factor is class and culture? But the school actually is quite is not so important. Yeah, and you know. <laughs> schools are one component of what young people obviously go on to achieve but it is only one component and then there's a big debate right about how much the role of outside of school factors kind of plays class background parenting etc um different people put different estimates on it but you know schools probably the more minor role compared to various other factors right and it goes on, there's a whole line of kind of questioning and academic studies kind of arguing, well, actually, how much can schools equalize the kind of uh, opportunity gap? And it's probably a lot more limited than a lot of people actually want to admit or actually understand uh, the capacity for schools to have. 
it, it may well be something that parents could do well to do with reminding of in the sense that an awful lot of energy, anxiety and so on goes into, you know, making sure your child or hoping your child goes to a certain kind of school. Or at least that's the very it's a very British middle class of aspiration is the anxiety over getting your kid to the to the good school. And yeah, I, I think it was a piece of research I'm sure you did was that if schools are judged to be not very good or schools are judged to be uh, OK, I mean, in, adequate to, to, to good. That may, doesn't have as much effect as you might imagine on the satisfaction of parents. Yeah, there are studies definitely that out there that show that the link between school quality and kids' outcomes is actually pretty weak. I think it's explained something like the study that's sticking out in my head. It's not my own study, but somebody else's about 2%, 3% of the variation in pupils' outcomes can be linked to kind of school quality measures, So, which is kind of you know, a tiny amount. And I think it links into kind of a wider kind of... Um, issue with often people assuming that England has a particularly large uh, gap in educational achievement between advantaged and disadvantaged peoples. You know, if you look at the international studies, it's pretty comparable to elsewhere. Um, we don't kind of stick out as this kind of absolutely massive outlier that a lot of people kind of may assume that we do. Actually, we're somewhere around the middle. You're listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Professor John Jerem. Professor of Education and Social Statistics at the University College London. We're discussing just how good or bad are British schools. That's interesting. Even when you compare us with, I mean, whenever you have these comparisons, we seem to do badly against Scandinavian countries. I mean, someone will always mention Denmark or Sweden, and they'll say something like, well, they've got it. You know, <laughs> Those societies are much more mobile and um, much less class disadvantage doesn't manifest itself so directly. So actually, we're not so comparably bad. Yeah, I mean, from well, off the top of my head, I don't have a feeling in front of you, but Sweden's always one that people think are doing a lot better than us in terms of that magnitude of the gap between the advantage and the disadvantage. And, you know, not really the case. It's pretty kind of similar. So, you know, actually the magnitude, how much this gap differs across countries. There is a difference, but it's not as stark as people might think. And if you compare, like, us to the 35 other countries that form the OECD, so the Club of Rich Industrialised Nations, you know, we're pretty much around the average. There's not kind of that much to discern us kind of out from most other countries. So are we doing terribly? No. Are we doing absolutely fantastically? Not really. We're kind of bog standard average, um, uh, average in the middle. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready to go, wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. <laughs> I'm not sure whether to be encouraged by that or not. 
Well, I think we should be somewhat encouraged by that. If you compare the kind of prevailing narrative, feeling, thoughts around people, if you kind of said to a lot of people, how bad is the disadvantage gap here? I think a lot of people would end up saying it's a lot worse than other countries. So I feel kind of relatively buoyed to kind of, with, with that message that actually it doesn't seem that to be that much worse or whatever here than elsewhere. We're pretty similar to most other nations. The other kind of interesting thing around that is, you know, where it does have a smaller gap than in England, it's uh, Wales, at least in the PISA study, according to the PISA study, Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland um, in some of the metrics, you know, stand out as having a smaller kind of difference in achievement between socioeconomic background and achievement. But it's not a good thing. People will always think having a smaller gap is necessarily a good thing. And it's not. The reason is, if you look at our disadvantaged children, again, according to the PISA data, our disadvantaged children actually perform very similarly to comparably disadvantaged pupils in Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales. The reason we've got a bigger gap is our most socioeconomically advantaged are doing so much better than their peers in Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland. So, yeah, we've got a bigger gap. People always turn around and say, well, that, that's terrible. That's a problem. But I'd rather be in our situation in England and have a bigger gap, but it's driven by our most advanced children doing better and our disadvantaged children aren't falling behind those in other countries. So I, I do kind of, although I've spoken a lot about the gap so far, I'm kind of there to you at the moment. I think actually we, there's too much focus on the gap per se. That may be controversial. Interesting. That Yeah, that, that is a different way of thinking about it. And the, who are the, the advantaged students? I mean, who does well in the British, in the English system then? What, what sort of student is doing well? It'll be the same in England as in most other countries. Those with parents from socioeconomic, higher socioeconomic backgrounds, more ability to go to private schools, not to say that it's due to going to private schools per se, but, you know, those with more, um, more socioeconomic advantage, more money, better occupations, more educated parents that's true in England but you know it's true in most other countries I think again going back to the kind of comparative perspective there are data kind of going back to the 1950s comparing the gap across several countries now the measure there's various bits of measurement issues with that it's not kind of perfect data it's the best data we've got going back those kind of you know 50 60 70 years and if you go back that time over 50 60 70 years the gap now as best as we can measure it, is pretty much the same as it was back 50, 60, 70 years ago. So, you know, there's a kind of a stark message. Things haven't really changed as much as we might expect or whatever over a kind of 50 or 60 years. Interestingly, if you look at comparable data for other countries, the gap's got bigger. <laughs> it hasn't shrunk in other countries either. It's not like we're standing still and everyone's getting better and narrowing their gap. If anything, from the the kind of paper that's been published you know the gap's got bigger elsewhere whereas it's kind of you know stood still here so that, that yeah that is a that is a kind of good news <laughs> yeah I, I i think of it as a kind of uh, a more interesting story than is often kind of you know the the standard narrative of england big gap equals bad yeah i mean i would have definitely the, the narrative tends to be you know back back in Post-war Britain, 1950s, people left the Second World War. They had lots of opportunities. Working class people found themselves working for the BBC and becoming, you know, 
directors of art galleries or goodness me or engineers or something and today there's a much more closed shop kind of world where the barriers uh, or the advantages of the of the middle classes to some extent exclude the working classes you know the, the, the disadvantage the chances of breaking out of your class disadvantage are harder now than they used to be and you're saying that's not necessarily true so we don't know in terms of uh, occupational attainment and income or whatever, but purely in terms of educational achievement, the best data we've got is suggesting, you know, the gap be between the most and least advantaged uh, individuals um, is about the same now as it was, you know, 50, 60 years ago. The best data we've got, not the perfect data. <laughs> right, right, okay. So what, how, where, where does research have to go then to answer the question as to whether or not Britain is a is, is um, enhancing its resources of talent and ability and not limited. How, where would you take the research to find the answer to that? Yeah, I mean, there are kind of more interesting data or interesting data coming out from, again, international studies, if you want to know this, England compared to us, where, where um, there's this, uh, the, the Tim study, an international study of mathematics, which is taken by uh, nine and ten year olds and previously it's just been nine and ten year olds and that's it so they've kind of tested once and whatever what they're trying to do now is test them ear, these children more than once so you can track their progress over the course of an academic year so from the end of year five through to the end of year six in England compared to kind of lots of other countries as well I'm not sure if England's taking part or not if not it should do because that would give you kind of some kind of hands a lot well you know how are our children that were initially doing well in that kind of test performing one year later if they're from, for instance, disadvantaged background and if they're high achieving? And how does that compare to kind of um, children in other countries? So I think there's, there are studies that make it possible to find out actually are we making the use of our best use of our kind of um, human resources or developing them as best as we possibly could compared to elsewhere. Whether we've actually signed up to that study or not, I'm not entirely sure. No, I think I've, I think I've heard of Tim's. So I'm not sure. I know that PISA is the one that's regularly mentioned and you've mentioned it. And, the, and I know that there's some suggestion as to whether or not PISA is a, is a very good means of comparing countries um, and comparing education systems. But can, in fact, can you compare education systems? Because they sit within a context of a culture, because of their cultural background and class background, and and so on. Pisa is often used to say, well, this this the way they do schools in this country. Pisa is often used as a way of comparing education systems, when maybe it's really just a, a snapshot of of sort of cultural backgrounds. Yeah, and I think there's certainly a lot to that. So you're right, Pisa gets misinterpreted. Sometimes willingly, sometimes uh, unwillingly or na naively, as comparing education systems across countries. It doesn't compare education systems across countries. It tests kids' test scores across countries in, you know, reading mathematics and science typically, which, you know, part of it will be schools, part of it will be secondary schools. These kids are 15 year olds, but part of it will be primary schools, part of it will be nursery, part of it will be culture, backgrounds parents, whatever factors. So it's the culmination of those things and how they interact with one another that's, you know, driving those overall test scores. So, yeah, you certainly shouldn't be equating that to it being the impact of the education system per se. It's the impact of all the things that goes into children's development up to and including through to the age of 15. So, you know, there's lots of different things going into that mixing pot. Where it 
I think the PISA data can be used to be say something about education systems uh, and the other international studies as well, Tim's Pearls, whatever, um, is from the kind of background questionnaire information that they collect, right? So they get really interesting information um, from teachers, head teachers, uh, students themselves or whatever, which kind of give you some insight into kind of actually what's England doing that other countries aren't in terms of how it's organising its education system. So I think that's actually the more useful descriptive way of understanding what we do compared to elsewhere and how does our education system compare to elsewhere rather than kind of just you know, crudely pointing to the test schools. The internet is a great uh, example of how people will love lists. You can you can get lots of hits on, on anything on TikTok or YouTube or internet if you simply say that the 10 best this is or the 10 best that. So PISA is, fits neatly into our desire to see us ranked somewhere. <laughs> you know, oh, we're up a bit, we're down a bit, there's some winners, there's some losers. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's a really interesting point of PISA, because you're right, people do look at like, you know, are we top five, are we top ten? Oh, we've moved from kind of seventh to, to twelfth or whatever. The trouble is, people over fixate on very small moves, or what seem to be kind of, you know, moves from seventh to twelfth, whatever. In reality, it's kind of statistically indistinguishable. And I always say to people, like when you've got a sustained swing of about 10 points in a PISA score, that's not just kind of a one-off blip, you know, that's getting like pretty interesting and that might be something that's kind of genuinely real. So in the last cycles, I think we've had a tick up in maths and I think reading, if they are kind of to some extent sustained in the next set of results, which was due out at the end of this year, then I think that's kind of, you know, actually some evidence to point to that uh you know educational standards have uh, improved but people too often focus on a blip rather than a trend and also overinterpret what is essentially a, a minute difference that is just kind of you know attributable to basically noise yes and not only will it be it, will it make good journalism? You know, we, we, we've beaten the French or something, or we've gone up two places or something like that, which are, which are with the seller newspaper. There's also, it'll be jumped on by uh, whatever the current government is doing. They'll say, well, this, is, this validates what we're doing. Clearly, we're succeeding here. Um, or if you're in opposition and it's, it's adverse movement, you say, well, that, that shows that we're failing in some way. So it, I wonder, I wonder is, it, is it therefore not that helpful? to provide that sort of comparison? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult because unless you provide that sort of comparison, people are probably going to do it anyway. And to be honest, the standard of reporting actually, I now see in the kind of media around PISA, a lot of the kind of places is a lot more thoughtful than it was once was. So I think there has been kind of some definite kind of um, definite improvements there. but. People don't understand the nuances around kind of the interpretations as well that are really important. One of my kind of um, favourite examples is Vietnam. Vietnam does incredibly well in PISA, particularly first time I think it ended it back in 2009 or 2012, I can't remember which one. It was, you know, within the top 10 or 15 countries, I think it was doing as well or I think it was better than us if you just take the raw figures kind of um, as they are. The trouble is people don't think, oh, PISA is a test of, you know, 15, 16 year olds who are in school. So actually, if you look at the data, drill down into the data, only 50% of Vietnamese kids at that point were still in school. 
So you've cut off the bottom half of the distribution from their kind of population straight away. So why did Vietnam do as well or better than England and the rest of the UK? Well, you know, if you, you cut, you've kicked half your young kids out of the study, out of the sample straight away. So the devil is always behind the detail. And that, that can be a criticism of the waste, for instance. I mean, China is often mentioned as a country that uh, that wouldn't want to see, be seen to be bad at PISA scores. So whatever way they're administered, and I know they're administered with outside OECD observers and so on, but they're, they're clearly administered within the Chinese system and they're going to at that particular schools and particular choices of schools. So are you actually getting a fair snapshot of um, a fair, a fair, sorry, fair um, measurement of actual Chinese success in education? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I've just this morning been doing some work with the TALIS study, which is the um, International Study of Teachers, where um, Shanghai is one of the participating jurisdictions. England uh, took part in 2018, and it's a great shame the government decided to not take part in 2024 because it's a great resource. But one of the things you notice about the Shanghai teachers is, yeah, they will answer the kind of survey, but they skip a load of questions and they... what is known in the survey literature as straight line, the kind of questionnaire. So just say you've got 10 questions in a row on a four point Likert scale, they just tick agree to everything. And you know, got about one in three just kind of responding in that particular way. So it goes on to kind of talk more generally to about kind of data provenance within these kind of international studies, right? You mentioned one there about, uh, you know, are you getting a fair sample? But even when you do have them kind of teachers or whatever taking kind of questionnaires, actually how much effort they put in and whatever. So there's a lot of these kind of really important data nuances that kind of people like me are really interested in and nobody else is, but they're really important to actually understanding the detail behind the headlines and making sense of all this kind of international stuff. Yes, it's a bit like if you're asked to present um, examples of your students' work, you, you know which students you're going to choose <laughs> to, to exemplify the good work you've been doing with them. <laughs> I was going to say, with that, you know, the OECD do, do put a lot of stock and all the international studies put a lot of stock into making sure the sample's randomly selected and making sure the pupils are randomly selected. Where some of the problem comes in with some of the countries is kids don't respond, people are away or whatever. So, you know, that's where kind of selection comes into the sample. And I've done work with the English PISA data showing basically those who don't take part in PISA basically get lower GCSE grades. So you are cutting off some of the lower achievers from kind of, you know, some of these international studies. Yes, it's easy to measure, easier to measure the people who wish to be measured and will participate in measurements <laughs> than the people who don't like to be measured, I suppose. Um, one of the articles I read, I think, it was, again, I think it was, you, was that and I thought this student, South Asian students do are two years ahead in mathematics than students in Britain or the United States or somewhere like that. And, uh, and that's often held up as you know, a, a lovely example of, of where we're failing and they're producing lots of people who are good at computers and science and so on. And yet, it, when you look at South Asian students in the UK or South Asian students in the United States or Australia, they're similarly a year or so ahead. So it, it isn't really the school system or necessarily, necessarily national policies at all. And yet, yet, yet national policies will often be pointed at. We need to, you know, need to change and to be more Asian-like Asian in our teaching. So clearly that's a really solid indicator that family background, work ethic, 
and expectations of parents are much more important. Yeah, I, and you know, I did that study uh, a long time ago now, about ten years ago, when Michael Gove was um, secretary for education, secretary of state for education, and um, all the rage was PISA and pointing to the Asian countries or whatever. And yeah, you, you put it exactly correctly there when. You compare the countries, England and the Asian countries, the Asian countries come miles out on top. But you're, you're right, when you compare Asian students within Western countries, they do much better as well. And we kind of see it in our own GCSE data as well. So it does point very much towards, well, is this kind of country's policies, practices or whatever, or is it more about culture, family background, emphasis on education i think it's much more towards that side of things than the school system per se that's not to say there isn't some differences and something we can learn from them and they could learn from us but it goes towards again playing the naive interpretation of course international studies show like the idea that china's doing better or south korea's doing better than us in mathematics because they've got higher average pisa scores therefore that's due to their kind of better schools and better education systems. That, that's clearly too simplistic interpretation of the data. And I, I suspect it fits into a, a sense of uh, our understanding of where our sort of culture, culture has developed in the sense that look, pe people from Britain or people from the United States looking at Asian countries will say, well, we'll look at them, admire discipline and order and see their own, cult our own cultures as as lacking in discipline and order. <laughs> and so it neatly fits in with that kind of narrative. You know, if only we had a bit more, you know, if only kids were sitting up in schools more and walking silently down corridors and wearing smart school uniforms like they do in Asia, then that somehow they'd also be good at maths. Which, which says more about the way we think our society is going than anything else. Yeah, and, uh, you know, there's also the fact that any study only measures certain things right PISA very much has traditionally focused on maths reading and science the East Asian countries have always done very well in there um much more so than the kind of western countries PISA has kind of taken on the OECD have taken on that criticism and now we're trying to branch out into measuring other things so I think the results that are being reported later this year include for the first time a creativity assessment or some kind of test of creativity again i'm going to be really interested to see what the questions actually look like but i think you know at least at face value that could help kind of you know give some more information about how kind of countries perform on different kind of parts of things if i was a betting man and i actually am a betting man and i probably would put money on this i still think singapore will come out on top of kind of when testing those other skills because quite possibly a lot of this stuff that we're seeing is about test motivation wanting to do well or whatever more than actual differences and abilities you know doing well on this these tests are a mixture of actual abilities plus actually being bothered <laughs> to put in the effort maximum effort to do well in them and it's a bit like if you're ever given one of those personality tests for a job or whatever and you pick up, as you read the test, you read the questions, you think, I can, I can see where this is going. I can see the kind of answers, even though I'm very unlike that person. That's the sort of person they'll want. And I'll tick that. You know, yeah. Are you are you open to new ideas? And you, well, a person, not, I'm terribly not open to new ideas. But I'll tick, yes, I am, because that's what I want. 
And I suspect that if um, freedom of expression were to become an Olympic category, uh, then China would achieve gold medals in that, regardless of what the actual lived experience of people would be in China, very much in the way that uh, sports, as soon as they begin, you could call it, in fact, the Olympic syndrome, where as soon as you classify, as soon as you award medals in a sport at the Olympics, regardless of actual participation or uh, how how much interest is in that sport in the ne in the country, then uh, money will flow towards it and people will achieve gold medals in it. Regardless, it's sort of we call it the curling um, syndrome, I mean, and not not unlike the way in which the British have a direct inverse correlation, I would suspect, between participation rates in sport generally levels of fitness and obesity as they those have declined and increased respectively as we have won more gold medals yeah the nation gets fatter and less fit as we become more accomplished at olympic sports so you think that the singaporeans will say well that's how you win at creativity could well be or they could just be you know spend more time actually sitting down bothering to think through the questions and try their best and kind of answering them or whatever so um you know now that PISA is a digital assessment it's all done online you do have uh information such as response times so how long kids spend on the questions and how long they spend on the questionnaire or whatever and you can see that there are some questions I've looked particularly at the questionnaire ones more than the test but you can see there's some questions that kids just race through and you know they're not taking the questions nearly as seriously as they kind of need to be to kind of give it their full effort and thought. So again, mixture of ability, but effort as well. So, 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 so the, the Singaporean students going to take, just take the test more seriously? Um, quite possibly. That's one, one con convincing argument for differences in the test scores. And there's been, there has been some research uh, done in the United States looking at incentivization and uh, differences across. I think it might have been even been done in the United States and an Asian country. Um, pointing towards test effort being kind of a major, possibly the major explanation for differences across countries. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The BBC features a story on the lack of guidance for teachers and schools on the issue of how to support transgender pupils. The article on the news website highlights the fact that the government first promised guidance for schools in relation to transgender more than five years ago, but the Department for Education is only due to publish this term. The piece has been written by the LGBT correspondent and the LGBT producer, and it outlines the difficulty they have had finding schools who are willing to talk about transgender policies, describing it as almost impossible. They say the BBC contacted head teachers across England, but almost all were too anxious to be interviewed on camera. 
unwilling to draw attention to their schools or pupils who identify as trans or non-binary. Most head teachers who did respond to questions said that without guidance, schools were left to make their own decisions, with some saying this left them in a no-win situation and fearing that whatever they did, they would be criticised or even vilified. One head teacher did say that the schools wanted guidance and advice to help ensure they were making decisions in the best interests of the child. The article also referenced survey tool teacher TAP, which had asked almost 7,000 teachers about their experiences of supporting transgender pupils. About 8% of primary school teachers said they taught trans or non-binary pupils, compared to 75% of teachers in secondary. Just over half said they were not very or not at all confident about next steps to take if a child said they wanted to change their name, pronouns or aspects of their appearance. The guidance is expected to address these issues, as well as the issue of how to involve parents if a child wishes to identify as a gender different to their birth sex, and what to do if a parent disagrees. When BBC News spoke to parents, it was also difficult to find a view everyone agrees with and parents were also reluctant to speak on record. Some told the BBC they did not want any decisions made without their approval, but others wanted schools to put their child's choices first. It is expected that the Department for Education will publish a draft for consultation prior to final guidance being issued, perhaps highlighting how sensitive the issue is. It is likely the guidance will cover legal ob obligations for single-sex schools, and whether schools should inform parents if their child is questioning their gender. It may offer advice on residential trips and single-sex sports. The DfE has said that the overriding principle would be that the well-being and safeguarding of children was paramount. After last week's online storm over the key stage 2 SATS reading paper, the content of the test has finally been published. It has been reported across media outlets that children had been in tears, some staff had to really think about the answers and parents were annoyed at the stress pupils faced, whilst the DfE said the SATS papers were rigorously trialled. The main concerns were over the test's complexity and length, although this spread into debate about the purpose of SATS overall. Details of the test can be found on the Standards and Testing Agency website. In Wales, a plan for a million Welsh speakers by 2050 is said to be likely to fail without a substantial increase in teachers speaking the language. This is according to a Welsh Government report which focuses on the drop in the number of Welsh speakers since the census in 2011. The 2021 census also found a decrease in the number of children and young people able to speak the language. The Welsh Government funds training programmes for those who want to learn or improve their Welsh who are teachers in schools in Wales. Finally, the BBC covers a story on words and phrases the public would like to see banned. It followed a tweet by Countdown's Susie Dent in which she asked which words people would like to see banished from the dictionary. Top of the list was the phrase going forward, followed by the other phrase no disrespect but. The word like when used as a filler word and the expression I'm not gonna lie. The list also featured my personal bugbear, sentences that begin with so. Dent used it as an opportunity to explore aspects of the English language and how some phrases which seem modern have actually been around for a long time. Details of the full top 10 are available on the BBC News website. So, going forward, I'm not going to lie, 
This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm considering how easy it is to get distracted when researching on the internet. I'm putting myself in the shoes of a young person and I've set myself a task of writing a report on the greatest invention of all time. I'm also not going to use ChatGPT. So, my first online search shows a lot of people claim the wheel is the greatest invention. And let's face it, there are a lot of them around. There are 9 million bicycles in Beijing. And that's a fact. That's 18 million wheels just on bikes in one city. If we assume nobody has a tricycle. This led me to want to know how many bicycles there are in the world. The answer I found was an estimated 1 billion. That's 2 billion wheels, again assuming nobody has a tricycle. Now I want to know how many wheels are there in the world. Another search tells me there's an estimated 37 billion, 24 of these billion being toys, and the next biggest share of 8.4 billion being on cars. A quick scan of the results page poses an additional question I hadn't considered. Are there more doors or wheels in the world? Well, I simply have to know. In a few clicks, I find out it's estimated there are 48 billion doors in the world. So based on this research, there are more doors and isn't a door a great invention? Yet it's not been proposed as one in my prior searches. And if there are that many doors, how many hinges must there be? The amazing thing about the internet is that there's always an answer. And the way search engines deliver those answers are designed to keep you interested and active. So potentially, you see more ads and make them more money. Which doesn't help get that report written, does it? Does your school teach young people how to research effectively? Do our young people realise how much they are advertised I'd love to hear your thoughts. As always, when I get in touch at TC Radio Official, I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. You're listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Professor John Jerin. Professor of Education and Social Statistics at the University College London. We're discussing just how good or bad are British schools. Is it, it strikes me as possible that, our, that one of our, that the reason we have a sort of an inferiority complex, and maybe I'm overdoing it there, but the inferiority complex when it comes to Asian countries and their sense of, you know, they, they do it properly because their schools are disciplined and they take mathematics more seriously than science more seriously than we do. Their STEM subjects are, and we are, we are altogether too indisciplined, is also a, a very British problem, which is class. In that, in that we kind of worry that the that the working classes aren't sufficiently ordered, aren't sufficiently, you know, there's, there's an ongoing kind of social, uh, moral panic about the working classes and so on. But it's deeply ingrained in Britain so that while parents worry about the, the outcomes of schools, they also more worry about who their daughter and son are going to be sitting next to in class. That becomes much more of a sense of uh, what I want to know is that the undesirables are under control and the school is a place of discipline and control. That seems to have been a trend for me in education over the last 10 years. It, well, it did lead me to one of the thoughts that I think is interesting about where our education system does seem to stand out from other countries, and that's in terms of um, ability grouping or setting and streaming or whatever. So, you know, you've got some other countries, Germany's always one of the classic examples, Austria, uh, the Netherlands, where you've got a lot of between school segregation, right? So 
um, children are separated into kind of different uh, different schools based upon kind of academic potential or whatever. I don't want to say like our grammar school system that we kind of still partially have over here, but it's, you know, kind of similar-ish uh, idea. That's that's true. Where England actually stands out interestingly from other countries is with uh, the amount of ability grouping that we do within schools. So the amount of setting and streaming we do in within schools. So if you uh, compare us to other countries, obviously we've got mainly a comprehensive system um so you know we don't have a lot of between school separation by kind of or explicitly by achievement but boy do we do it in schools we kind of set and stream more here both across classes and within classes here than kind of almost any other countries according to the kind of um, the tims data at least the tims and pals data i believe um so that's where your kind of thought led me which was kind of i always think is one of the most interesting kind of um, descriptive pieces from these kind of uh, international studies about where we kind of stand out from elsewhere, which I think speaks to the point that you were making about who your kid sits next to in class. Well, you know, we have a way of dealing with that to some extent. We set and stream quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, yes, we got rid of grammar schools and secondary moderns, but we put, but really we put them under one roof. So now the secondary modern and the grammar school sit side by side under the, under the roof of a comprehensive school. Uh, and as you say, you know that that my my own experience was that all in the in the decades I was teaching is that where there was setting and streaming, there was almost no mobility within that. So there were tests, end of year tests, and so on. But people people who went in at the lower set stayed there, and people who went in at the upper set stayed there from beginning to end of secondary school. It was it was simply a different path they went through. Even though we often found ourselves saying to students things like, "Well, you know." Uh, maybe next year we'll evaluate your position in, in test. In, in the, in, you know, maybe you maybe you'll make it into the upper set, but they they never did. Almost I, not. I recall them being notably the case. So it was a case of uh, you know self fulfilling prophecy, really. Yeah, and I, I don't know actually of that much hard evidence on how much people do actually move across sets now within school but my kind of own experience at school was very kind of similar that actually setting was very common but people didn't move across the sets like you didn't have people move up and down hardly at all so once you were there you were there um i genuinely don't know how much mobility there is now that's a that that leads me to an even more depressing thought having looked <laughs> looking back on 35 years of teaching <laughs> and that is that, I mean, I, I'm quite prepared to believe that schools, in fact, I'm slightly relieved to believe that schools aren't as absolutely determining determining of people's lives as, as we might imagine, you know, because if you think of yourself as, you know, that I, I could change the direction of people's lives, it's terrifying. But the, or I'm responsible for their lives. I'm quite prepared to have, to have that. But what I, what, what, what I resist, although I'm, I'm drawn towards it, is do schools actually do harm? particularly in Britain, when I think of things like setting and exam systems and the way they, they produce certain results and they are skewed towards certain types of students, are we reinforcing social inequality? In fact, our school's rather good at producing failure for some and success for others, relating mostly to their class backgrounds. Yeah, and I mean, there are kind of sociological arguments that John Goldthorpe, a very famous kind of a... British uh, sociologist has made this these kind of similar arguments that actually how useful is 
schools, education, whatever for social mobility? And might they just end up reinforcing uh, existing inequalities? And of course, every parent wants their best for their for their children, right? So it's quite plausible and possible that actually, no matter hard, how hard we try, you might not just be able to fight against the, um, you know, sharp knives of parents. Parents will always end up finding a way to give their child an advantage some way or another if they've got the motivation and the resources to do so. Yeah. And so you could always be trying to push against something. As soon as you try to do one thing to shut one door, another one might well open. Good, good example of this could well be if there is a tax put on uh, private schools, right, which has been something, you know, variously floated or whatever. Fine if that is done, but then I'm sure that people who send their children to private school will find another mechanism, will just find another way to give their child an advantage. And you can't shut all those doors because there'll always be a way found um, otherwise. That is a depressing thought, isn't it, in some respects? <laughs> yeah. So the argument, it is a depressing thought. <laughs> it's a, it's just because it's almost like a kind of um, what can you do about this thought? It's uh, the, the sharp, the sharp elbowed middle class will always work their way to the front. Whatever system you try to create to mitigate against that, they will always get there. So, <laughs> so what can you do? Um, yeah, that, that is a depressing thought. I guess what worries me is is are schools actually not just partic not are they not just failing to to um, overcome those natural dis natural inequalities but they're actually enhancing them. I was thinking of, for instance, uh, one point in my career when I first started teaching, school uniform was relatively rare, not rare, but it was it was less common. So lots of schools have got rid of school uniform. It, this may seem like a you know not particularly enormously important thing, but uh, during my career, school uniforms were, were progressively reintroduced, mainly from parental pressure and an idea they had that the model of education was the private school. The private school had uniforms and the grammar school had uniforms. Therefore, state schools reintroduced uniforms. They came back in, with a vengeance across schools. So there's rarely a school now without a uniform. But they, the, the uniform came back in such a way that you could still tell the difference. And students knew the difference. They're, they're cheap uniform. They're sort of black uniform, you know, the black and grey uniform they were given that they bought at the co-op was distinctly different from the uniform from the private school and the grammar schools. So we, in fact, we dressed them in a uniform which expressed their disadvantages. It almost, it's almost a costume of failure rather than, you know, it's the, sort of the uniform of the bog standard comp. And I thought to myself, well, uh, it's not... It, that just seems to me to symbolise or to, 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 to be a manifestation of the way in which exams and setting and culture is, is actually, those disadvantages are enhanced by schools when it should be the opposite. I mean, the uniform one's an interesting point, right? Because you're right, it will still, there could still be these big differences between schools. You're right, private schools and grammar schools versus um, comprehensive schools or whatever, or secondary modern schools. But actually within the school, it's a great equaliser, right? As in, and most of the variation that there is in children doesn't happen between schools. It happens actually within schools, particularly in terms of achievement, um, but also with socioeconomic status or whatever. 
Um, and so at least you're equalizing things within the school, right? In terms of the posh kid within the school is dressed exactly the same as the kid that's from the kind of um, disadvantaged background within that school. So at least you've equalized that. So I think, you know, there's the whole between versus within school kind of thing that's going on there. Uh, yeah, I, th I think uh, that that is certainly an argument there that the, the, the uniform, you know, in its sense of creating a uniformity among among students. Although I, I would also say that I've noticed that the student who's been given his elder brother's uniform, <laughs> and uh, or, or or because the family want to save money, they've bought it plenty of time. In other words, it's very very long in the leg and long in the arm, so that it will last a number of years. Is distinctly different to the to the kid who gets his new uniform every year and so on. So there are you, and I think kids are very, very good at reading those things. Unfortunately, they're almost hypersensitive to to small differences in quality <laughs> and newness. <laughs> Quite possibly. I mean, I'm experienced. My, my my youngest, my eldest, is now in reception, and so I'm experiencing the amount of non-uniform days that are off, for things like World Book Day and the King's Coronation. And hey, it's Thursday, um, so you know, you know, there's a very much a mix now. It seems of. Uh, Uniform versus non-uniform. I mean, is does it ever? I wonder if it, do you think when your your children say, "Well, um, it's non-uniform day," and they clearly like that. That's seen as a reward. It's non-uniform day tomorrow, so that's a reward. Well, maybe they should. Be, well, well, that leads me to to wonder whether statistically, can you measure students' happiness in school? Are they are they enjoy, enjoying their lives in schools as much as they should? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Can you measure it? And there are attempts to measure it, right? There's questionnaires, as I've said again from the international studies, but lots of different studies attempt to kind of ask kids questions um, about this. You are reliant, obviously, on people telling you the truth and people kind of responding to the questionnaires. So can you measure it? Roughly, I would say. I wouldn't say you can kind of pinpoint it massively well but i think you can get a kind of broad idea and really i always think about those things as you could probably get a better handle on the trend right rather than probably the absolute level because the problem with the absolute level is um like i just said people will always have a tendency to report a certain way or another you can make kind of a vaguely reasonable assumption that would be probably similarish over time so i think the more interesting thing there is trend over time versus um versus the absolute level i've done some work there myself actually with kind of one of the big topics um sats tests how does kids happiness and well-being vary according to uh, when the sats tests take place and actually it doesn't seem to be nearly as responsive to the SATs as people might think, right? So if you track kids from before the SATs, just after the SATs, there's no kind of real difference or real change in their kind of well-being or happiness or enjoyment of school. And England actually looks very similar to Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland in that respect, which obviously don't have the SATs tests as well. So I think that goes to kind of give you an example about what I think you can look at in terms of happiness and well-being of children in schools. You can look at the trend over time, pre-post-SATS, how compared to other countries, and look at things that way. You're listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. 
My guest this week, Professor John Jerin, Professor of Education and Social Statistics at the University College London. We're discussing just how good or bad are British schools. So, so the suggestion that SATs are uh, a, a, an unpleasant stress doesn't seem to be borne out by the statistics. No, I don't think there's actually any good hard evidence to support that narrative. And like I said, when I wrote that paper, one of the reasons I did it was because you know, it said so much. And there's a lot of qualitative research around it. And there's a lot of kind of, you know, discussion and opinion about it, but very little in the kind of way of hard data. So hence why I wanted to look at it and did that kind of study that I said. And since I did it, I know there's a Norwegian study as well, where very similar kind of qualitative research and very similar arguments are made. So uh, an economist did similar work over there and found exactly the same thing as I did. Actually, when you look at the kind of data and the statistics, you can't find any kind of strong evidence that that's the case. Is there any research that shows what factors do enhance happiness in schools? I mean, for instance, I was struck, uh, my, my wife's American, and for a while I taught in an American high school. And it struck me for all the faults, and Americans agonise, if we agonise over the state of our education system, Americans agonise even more. And they, but, but one thing that struck me is how much high school was seen as a happy time. And even even kids who would we would consider in poor in low sets not doing very well had this thing school spirit and they they threw themselves into this school the great energy and my wife remembers she said well I, I'm surprised kids kids in England seem to put up with school but I loved high school and I thought well I you know how many kids come out of school saying I loved my school in a way that I found this is purely anecdotal it could be just completely nonsense but. The, the, the Americans seem to seem to have produced happiness in school more successfully than us. It could just well be American enthusiasm. <laughs> um, it could be that, yeah. Yeah, it could be. And again, you do see it kind of actually um, in survey data, right? Where actually, <laughs> this is kind of, you know, very culturally stereotypical, but you do see the American responses within within questionnaires or whatever generally being towards the you know agree strongly agree happiness whatever kind of side of things more than say uh the uk a, West, a kind of a, a western european country so it could just be that side of things i think it's a really interesting point and i think actually following up on some of that anecdote with more data might be actually really interesting because i had the same feeling of you how many kids would come out bursting out over here going i love school and i love my time it's super happy time over here particularly secondary school you often think of it as a difficult challenging time i would think um and so it, it would be genuinely interesting to know if there is a real difference in that experience across the united states and England. Yeah, I um, when I I did a, a, an exchange year in the United States, and when in the high school where I taught, after one day I was approached by a fellow teacher who said to me, uh, "Hey, John, uh, you know, are you okay?" <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm good, thank you very much." And they they were and, and the, the other teachers have been discussing whether I was you know seriously depressed. 
because of the way I answered questions. Like they'd say, hey, how are you today? And I'd say, could be better <laughs> or not too bad. And they just picked up from my self-deprecating, sort of underwhelming approach to life that I must be clinically depressed. <laughs> yeah, I spent three months in the States during my PhD. And uh, yeah, I, 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 I know what you mean, you know, the understated response of how's the day going? And you give some kind of half sarcastic comment or look. <laughs> they, just, they think you're kind of madly, uh, madly depressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm surviving. I'm getting through. It's nearly the weekend. <laughs> these things but the other another thing that i was uh, astonished by in my in my brief year i was there was i was asked one day to come to the first the one of the games they were playing football at the school and i thought well why would i i'm going to come out in the evening back to the school to watch football i will but when i went there that evening it wasn't at all like my british experience of going to watch the football team you know half a dozen parents standing on the touchline waiting for it to end the, the whole town had turned out this was a, this was a joyous experience, and there was cheerleaders, and there was a band playing. Astonishing Com level of commitment to a, a a high school small town experience, and it was as if the whole school had invested. And I was even asked in shops what I thought about the latest the quarterback they'd chosen for that season, the kid in the you know the, the captain of the, the school team, and what I thought about their choice. And I thought, well, that part of the answer might be that the school had become the centre of the community and they knew it. They knew they were quite important in that little world, but it fundraising, sport playing, whatever. I don't know, but I had a very similar experience. That, that was probably my biggest culture shock when I was in the States for that period was just, you know, college, high school sports is just a different level. <laughs> it's just a different level of craziness compared to over here. The biggest culture shock I had was like, what is going on? Yes. And uh, I, I don't know, I, I experienced one day a pep, a pep rally. And uh, I don't think there's anything that translates into this country quite like a pep rally, which is where the, in school, the entire school go into the gymnasium in order to shout their heads off about how brilliantly excited they are at the latest football game that's going to be played. Well, you know, I, and if, if you could uh, look, at our, look at our education system and say, well, how, if, if, if not SATs, uh, we are certainly one of the most examined of of, of systems, surely. I mean, we're not just, if, if you take up the SATs, or maybe not as stressful as we might think, GCSEs and A-levels and so on. We, do we compare, how do we compare in terms of exam anxiety with other countries? Yeah, so, you know, I think talking about the GCSEs is a really interesting uh, one, because I think, there is evidence to show that we do stand out from other countries, not in the fact that we have GCSEs or have some tests that are reasonably high stakes around that point. I think where we really stand out is just the amount of testing we do at that age, right? So you do a full on set of GCSEs, you're doing what, 25, 30 hours of exams, a huge amount. And you look at various other education systems. I remember getting slightly obsessed with the Taiwanese system uh, of exams around that point when I was doing working into it a few few months back. And they do, I think, five, maybe six hours of exams all done on one weekend. <laughs> and they have it done. Where the idea of doing getting uh, them in for exams on the weekend might not be the most popular. But the, the idea of just having you know six hours worth of exams over two or three days, rather than having this whole drawn out period, that is the GCSEs. 
I think there are things we can learn from other countries there. Do we need kind of precise measurements on all the different subjects that kids do uh, at GCSE? Probably not. Previously, that might well have been an argument for that, but that's probably not the case now. And I think just thinking about examination and assessment reform, both the SATs and GCSEs, actually, I think both can probably be shortened down from the amount that we do right now. I just don't think that there is a lot of assessment time. The idea that the SATs takes place over four days with kind of multiple hours of testing, despite kind of my own research or whatever, I think there are other good reasons why you could cut that down and reform SATs and reform GCSEs and, you know, do goods for the kind of education system more broadly. So when I kind of talk about the link between assessment and stress and anxiety and well-being or whatever, it's not to say there's not other good reasons for thinking about changing or reforming kind of those assessments. I just think sometimes the kind of um, stress, anxiety, well-being one is probably slightly overplayed to kind of some of the other reasons, other good reasons why you might change those kind of assessment designs. And there's a kind of um, subject uh a sense of subject identity. Subjects see themselves as proper subject if there's an exam at the end of that. So uh, we, we assess things like art and PE and, and, and physical education and, um, and drama in ways that you might think, well, I'm not sure the, there should be an assessment at the end of that, you, you know, <laughs> other, other than what the other than your participation in that experience. Uh, but the, sub the subject itself feels the subject teaches themselves that well, well, we, we want to have an exam to prove that we're a a proper enterprise, an enterprise that's properly directed towards something significant and measurable. Yeah, and I, I, I can see kind of see a motivation kind of for that, and I would certainly see any kind of uh, assessment, be it SATs or GCSEs, would have to cover a broad range of subjects, not just English and maths, but an entire range of stuff, right? But that can be done, that can be done. And that kind of gives you both the kind of, this is part of the assessment, but it's not taking so much time, right? In terms of doing it for every single subject in such a way that you get a separate score for every single subject, if that makes sense. We're approaching the end now. And, and I thought if I can end on, if it's possible to end on a positive, I, think, I don't think we've been in not positive. I think there's all sorts of positive things we've said, <laughs> but the, if this, I started with thinking about the, the, the possible waste of talent and however you measure talent and so on, but the possible waste of talent in, any, in our society. And what we, what we want is students to, to, to live up to their potential. What works? What one thing or two things do you think actually across the board in other countries and this country works and that either we do or we don't do it? Are there things we could say, well, that, that's a, that, we should do more of that? I mean, that's, a, that's probably a big ending to try and end on, but... Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things around this, right, is the Education Endowment Foundation. The Education Endowment Foundation for over a decade now, around a decade now, has been looking into the various things that can be done, right, to help children improve in education and particularly disadvantaged children. The vast majority of the things, <laughs> this kind of, you wanted a positive uh, ending, I'm not sure I'm going to give it to you. The vast majority of things they've looked at have produced a zero effect. The one thing that I think you can really kind of point to, right, particularly in terms of catch-up, is private tuition, <laughs> right, in terms of small group, one-to-one, -one, whatever, tuition to help people kind of focus for a period of time to enhance their skills on that kind of particular subject. It's not cheap, it's not easy, 
Um, but it seems to be probably our best bet in terms of anything we can point at to say that's going to be reasonably effective. So actually, that is probably the one thing that I think we can really point towards as saying, you know, there's actually some good evidence kind of around this. More generally, just end on a less positive note, I do think we should be taking something from the fact that 10 years of loads of educational experiments, loads of ideas being tested and finding not much actually works or we haven't been able to detect an effect on achievement should probably tell us something about our ability to move things like test scores, maths, English reading test scores, by that much. And I think that also plays into what I was saying earlier about PISA. When you get moves, they tend to be quite small. If you look at the disadvantage gap, actually doesn't seem to be much evidence it's changed over 50, 60, 70 years. Education Endowment Foundation has not found loads of things that are really kind of effective. I think what we take from all of those pieces of evidence to kind of bring this kind of talk together is things like test scores are really, really difficult to move. So if you get any movement on them at all, it should be kind of seen as a really, really big success. Thank you. That, that did bring it all together. So, Professor John Jerry, thank you so much for joining me this week. I've, I've, I've really enjoyed our discussion and uh, I found it, yeah, very, actually, yeah, overall quite very positive. I've learned a lot. Thank you. A real tour de force. <laughs>
in only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. Thank you.